There's no mistaking, we're in fall. The temperature has plummeted to go right along with it. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and for a special appearance, Courtney Astolfi, the day after her birthday. Happy belated birthday, Courtney. Good morning. We have Courtney on to talk about a tax increase that Armin Budish would have you believe is not a tax increase. So let's get to it. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish has said repeatedly that he would not raise taxes to pay for a new jail, but it sure sounds like we'll be paying more in taxes because of the way he wants to pay for the new jail. Courtney Astolfi, our current county reporter, soon to be City Hall reporter. What's the plan? Yes. So after long last yesterday, we finally heard the jail financing plan. The executive proposes extending a quarter percent sales tax that was initially um, levied in 2007 to pay for the MedMart project. That tax was set to expire in 2027. The executive wants to extend that tax indefinitely. But he says it's not a tax increase. So, So let's put that into perspective. As of right now, in 2027, our tax rate in Cuyahoga County was set to drop back to seven and three quarters, right? That was the plan, right? Yep, yep. He wants to extend it indefinitely. So up until now, our taxes that we would have paid was, was a certain amount of money. If you would have bought a car in 2028, you would have paid a certain amount of money in taxes. With his plan, you'll pay more in taxes. How does he say that's not a tax increase? By any definition I know, if I'm paying more later than I pay now, my taxes have gone up. You know, I guess he's making a semantical kind of argument. It's an extension as opposed to an increase. (laughs) He kind of, he likened it to school levies that get renewed and renewed, but like voters approve those levies generally. So it was kind of an odd comparison, but That's what he's falling back on, extension versus a brand new tax. But either way, you know, earlier this year, he said he would not support a new or a new or additional tax increase to to pay for the jail. But now this is what he's pursuing. Well, and the silliness about this is if he came out and said, look, we got to build a new jail. Our, Our jail is inhumane. It's bad. We all know what's bad. We have to build one. It's our responsibility. And the only way I can do it is to boost the taxes a little bit. I'm doing it in such a way that it doesn't, you won't feel it because I'm extending the tax you're already paying. Yes, I know. I thought you all thought it would go away, but we got to build the jail. Nobody would, nobody would begrudge that. You know, the candidates running against him, because apparently he's not reading the tea leaves at all and is planning to run again, will say he raised taxes and he will try to say, I didn't raise taxes. But every time he says he didn't raise taxes, we will report, yes, you did, because it is a tax increase and it's just silly to play these semantic games. So, Courtney, speaking of the people that want to run against him, what did they say about the issue of whether this is a tax increase or not? Yeah, so Democrat Democratic candidate Chris Ronane, he, he he just said, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck, it's a tax increase. So call calling it for what it is. You know, uh Republican candidate Lee Weingart said the same thing. It's an increase. He also criticized it as being, you know, a, a regressive tax that disproportionately affects working people and seniors to to, to pay for a new jail. Well, you know, the, the- I but that okay. brings up the other bigger point here, which is they're they're racing ahead with this jail plan without 
having all the data about what's needed. We don't know how justice reform might affect the population. We, we don't know if, if the current status will continue. And Weingart and Chris Ronane are both raising questions like, hey, shouldn't we do more research before we go flying ahead like this to, to commit all this money to it? The other odd thing is everybody was, originally was talking about a jail and a, and a courthouse. And nobody's talking about the courthouse. Is that because the price of those two together would be more than a billion and nobody wants to talk about that number? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. So, you know, part of the reason why I think this plan was rolled out yesterday is because this morning a group of county and city officials will get together and begin conversations about what to do with the aging courthouse. So I think he wanted to roll this out kind of ahead of that conversation beginning. And he did acknowledge later in yesterday's press conference the there will there will be a lot of excess revenue here above and beyond what it's going to cost to pay for the jail this quarter percent brings in a lot of money and he said you know we can use the excess revenues from this from this tax extension to perhaps pay for the justice center courtroom project which we know is going to be expensive so it seems like this isn't just an increase for the jail it's a pot of money that will be drawn upon for big capital expenses that are looming, including the courthouse. If they use it for the baseball field, because that deal is coming through, that will go back on his promise where he said no tax increase for the baseball field. Because if you're using the increase in taxes that he's creating and you have extra, extra revenue that goes to baseball, then he's reneging on that promise too. It'll be interesting to see the gymnastics they do with, with that. The, uh, the idea that this tax was supposed to expire in 2027 and he wants to to extend it he he doesn't want to have a sunset date at all he wants to make this our permanent tax we'll have the highest tax rate in the state what does the county council president say about that yeah so that that was interesting that it's an indefinite end date and that's what council president pernell jones jr said he, he said you know the jail's necessary i'm not opposed to extending the quarter percent for a specific project essentially a specific amount of time but but he has some concerns about this indefinite nature of the proposal. So we'll see if county council kind of pushes Armin back on that and, and maybe pushes for a sunset date. Well, I was thinking yesterday of ways we could demonstrate to people how much this will cost them over the long haul. But my problem is, unlike a lot of taxes, this is infinite. The tax increase is, is to infinity and beyond because it would never sunset. If he if he were to say, I'm going to extend it by 10 years, you could sit down and calculate what do people average spend in Cuyahoga County? What do they buy each year? You know, what is how does this hit the pocketbooks? But but if you look at this as forever, this could be the biggest tax increase in history. I mean, 100 years of it could could beat any other tax that's ever been created. And yet, Courtney, it's not a tax increase. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Courtney. I, I thought it would be good to have you on to, to give us the specific details. You've done a good job reporting this thing. And I, you know, I let the cat out of the bag. As the new administration comes in in City Hall, you're going to be moving over to be our new City Hall reporter. Uh, look forward to what you do there. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Having faced a torrent of outrage over their secrecy and gerrymandering of the state legislative districts, are Ohio legislators suddenly showing transparency with regard to drawing congressional maps? Lisa Garvin, I want to think this is a benevolent thing that they're trying to do, but they kind of had to, right? 
They did. And, and I mean, it seems very grudging. What they did was they, they added an amendment to an unrelated bill about child abuse among military families, House Bill 92. And the amendment was added to establish a process for public submission of proposed congressional maps. This is for U.S. Congress um, by mail or electronically. And this is required by the Ohio Constitution. So they they're actually showing, for once, you know, adherence to the Ohio Constitution. Um, but Matt Huffman, who, <laughs> for once, yeah, for, <laughs> we'll see. But Matt Huffman, who is on the Ohio Redistricting Committee and also the state Senate president, says it's likely the September 30th deadline for drawing these congressional maps will be missed. And he also said, quote, there is no meaningful work, unquote, being done on these maps at this time. So you know, here we go. But at least, and, and we have not heard exactly how and when the public can submit their maps. So they said, okay, we've established it, but we, we haven't told you how that's going to be done. So the deadline is September 30th, but then this is kind of wishy-washy, just like the, uh, the state legislature maps. So they must <laughs> approve by 930. So if they don't do that, after that, it goes to the Ohio Redistricting Committee, which must have approval from both Democrats on that panel. After Halloween, if there's no approval, the maps go back to the legislature with a lower bipartisan threshold. So uh, the final deadline would be November 30th. Uh, it, it's just very confusing. But yeah, I, I just I'm waiting for them to uh, tell us how we can submit our proposed maps. So yeah, they're grudgingly moving in the right direction, but not fast enough, in my opinion. Well, we should point out if they miss the September 30th deadline, they're not actually in violation of the Constitution because the Constitution considers that and has steps that happen. If they miss that deadline, there are steps, as you described, that we move forward on. So it's not it, with the legislative maps for the state house. They just abrogated their duties as as articulated in the Constitution left and right. With this, the Constitution knows these guys are unlikely to reach agreement and it builds in systems by which uh, to get to get the job done anyway. Yeah, uh, but, it, but at least the, Go ahead. there'll be transparency for anybody that sends in a map. It's required that it be posted on a website for all to consider uh, that could spark more public discussion. What was what was alarming with the the legislative maps was almost the complete lack of public attention paid to it. Uh, and and there was no outrage except here that I just was surprised that they violated the Constitution repeatedly and no one seemed to care. Well, and here we are. I mean, they've known about this for a while now and we're we're a week away from the September 30th deadline. They're like, oh, we're going to miss that. You know, we don't really have any work being done on the map. So, I mean, it's slightly better than the state maps, but not much. Can I okay. add, this is Laura Johnston. I just feel like they got away with it. So they're like, well, we didn't really have any consequences. So why should right. we pay attention to, to the deadlines drawn in now? Yeah, it's right. staggering. There's no consequences for violating the Constitution. And of course You're listening they... to This Week in the CLE. How might a lot of Northeast Ohioans play a role in coming up with effective treatments for COVID-19 infections? Laura Johnston, I guess the only way you could play a role is if you're actually sick. So I, I'm not crazy about the idea, but 
but, but if you are sick, but you may you, have a way of getting unsick. Exactly. If you are sick, there's a trial looking for multiple ways to treat COVID. And the end goal is to keep you out of the hospital, keep you alive, and keep you from getting long COVID, which is, you know, when you're suffering those symptoms for month after month. There's a whole bunch of hospitals involved in this. Metro Health, Case Western Reserve University, and Wexner Medical Center in Columbus are among the Ohio hospitals that are part of this worldwide drug trial looking at treatments. And the need for therapies is so urgent that they're not just evaluating one, they're evaluating three treatments simultaneously. And this means that people could get a chance of getting better faster. You have to ha sign up for 72 weeks, though, because, you know, they're looking at long COVID, so they want to see how you act over time. And um, you can be randomly chosen to enter one part of the study for interferon beta, which is a natural antiviral, or polyclonal antibodies or monoclonal antibodies. Those are both synthetic. Yeah, and as I understand the polyclonal, it's attacking multiple areas of the virus. With the monoclonal, you're getting multiple antibodies that go after one area of the virus, but I'm not a doctor. I only play one on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, poly and mono would make me make me think that. They started by testing seven drugs, only three past the early stages, so they're being evaluated. So, I mean, this is good. I mean, I, I, I wish no one got COVID anymore, but at least if they're getting it, then they get better faster. Well, and there's such an urgency to come up with treatment methods that they're doing all these simultaneously. Normally, you do one of these at a time, but they're, I mean, we got to figure out a way to treat people for this thing beyond vaccines because a lot of people are getting it even if they're vaccinated. True. It's cool that Northeast Ohio gets to play a role in that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Senator Sherrod Brown propose helping nearly 8 million senior citizens and people who are blind and disabled by overhauling the supplemental security income system? Lisa Garvin, this is an interesting move by, by Sherrod. It kind of fits with his mantra. He's a guy that always tries to help the little guy. And he says that the little guy in this case hasn't been helped in decades. Quite a long time, since the 70s. Um, what uh, Senator Brown is aiming to do, he is actually chair of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Social Security, but he has introduced a bill to finally update the income rules and the asset limits for people on Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. There are 300,000 people in Ohio that are on SSI, and 60% of those, that's their only source of income. Right now, the average for Ohioans on SSI is 500 $185 a month, which is about $7,000 a year. The maximum amount they can claim per month is $794. But uh, basically, and he's right, I mean, Senator Brown said that these old rules for SSI punishes people for working or trying to save money. There were very low limits. Right now, the asset limit for a single person on SSI is $2,000. And for a married couple, it's 3000 Well, Senator Brown is proposing raising that asset limit by quite a lot, $10,000 for single people and $20,000 for a couple. So uh, big, big help there. And also people can take a job and not worry about losing their benefits. Right now, um, they can get job income up to $400 a month without affecting their benefits at all. So, And also apparently married couples if both of them were on SSI, they got punished when they married. Their benefits were cut, but they're removing that benefit cut for SSI couples who marry. So good news for people on SSI. 
So Sherrod Brown is a well-known Democrat, and since he's the one proposing this, is it likely he'll get opposition just because of the partisanship that exists in Washington, or does it appear that this could get bipartisan support, or don't we know yet? I don't think we know yet. I, I would hope it would get bipartisan support. I mean, it would kind of look bad to like take money away from seniors and disabled people, but you know, that hasn't stopped Republicans before. So we'll see. But it seems like at the outset that it's got some bipartisan support. Okay. Well, let's see how that one goes. You're listening to this week in this CLE. What is Cleveland School CEO Eric Gordon's plan for evolving the district in a post-pandemic world? Laura Johnston, you were there for his State of the Schools speech, his 11th, I was surprised to see. Uh, he's been doing this a long time. What did you hear? Yeah, absolutely. He had a room full at the Renaissance ballroom listening to his every word. And he had a whole graphic presentation where he used boat analogy. So he said, we've been surviving the stormy seas of COVID, but to really prepare students for the future, we need not to return to port, but to travel to an entirely new destination. And we need to transition our lake freighter to a luxury cruise ship for our students. It was very nautical. But the idea here is that we're completely changing the way that they look at education. And the American Rescue Plan and Cleveland's Issue 68, a tax increase that voters approved, will allow CMSD to make some changes with their school year and their their buildings. They want to provide every student and educator with an iPad, a Chromebook, or a laptop and replace them off enough that the seniors graduating can keep them. They want to put health professionals in every campus. And in K through eight schools, they want to offer time before or after the traditional school day to give kids more access to art and music and physical education. It was just a really passionate, positive speech about really educating the full child and not just sticking to like sitting in a desk and learning, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic. He's been such a, a visionary CEO. It's always interesting to hear what his thoughts are. And he, because he was an educator, he's not just been an administrator. He really understands it. He did get a question about critical race theory because this was part of the city club where you have questions. What did mm -hmm. he say? To that? Yeah, he basically said, if he, he said, we don't teach critical race theory. Nobody teaches critical race theory in K through 12 education. It's a, it's a college field of study. And it's very unfortunate that people are using this term to attack school boards for, you know, children. But he said, the idea is we teach history. We teach the whole history. We teach American history and global history. And you can't edit out the parts that you don't like. If you want to teach history, you have to teach the things you're proud of and the things you're embarrassed by. And he said the same thing about literature. You can't just pick and choose the brightest moments from, from literature and that they want to teach the full curriculum and, and the full gamut of human experience. And he got a resounding set of applause for that. It went on quite a while. I think people were really pleased to see him take such a stance. Yeah, it sounded like it was very strong words. It's good to hear. Uh, can it's I, always good can, to hear from Eric. Can I add in that they were really, there were a whole lot of kids that got to attend this address. And so there was like the city club, there's, you know, a microphone for questions. Well, there was a microphone for adults and there was a microphone for kids. So the kids got up and they asked, you know, like, what are you going to do to make sure we catch up from the COVID year? And what are you going to do if COVID comes again? And he basically told every kid that they had a really good question and he addressed it. Um, for COVID, for example, they have they have gone remote with one class, but he said it, they're back in school now. He said there's only one case he knows of 
of catching COVID at school. So he's really hopeful that they keep up the masking, they keep up their uh, hand sanitizing and the fogging of the classrooms that they'll be able to continue the school year. Okay. The story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ohio legislators find it necessary to exempt companies from paying overtime to employees for hours they spend in their cars commuting to the job? Lisa Garvin, I I don't get this. I'm not aware of companies ever paying overtime to employees getting to and from the job. We've all worked for many years, and when when we were in the position where you might get overtime, you never got overtime for that. What's going on here? So Senate Bill 47 passed Wednesday, 25 to 7, on a party line vote, so it now goes to the House. But what this bill does is it exempts overtime pay for commuting time and people who check messages in their off hours. This bill is supported by the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. It also covers what they call preliminary and post-liminary tasks to workers' primary activities during the day. Not exactly sure what that means. But the bill is uh, co-sponsored by Senator Andrew Brenner, who is a Republican from Delaware County. He just wants to clear up what isn't eligible for overtime. And of course, this landscape has changed because people were working from home. It really changed the whole, you know, eight hours in dynamic. And so he's basically trying to clarify for employers and employees what is and isn't eligible for overtime. And Chris, I agree with you. Uh, I'm surprised that that there were votes against this, actually. Well, but let's talk about the second part of that, because I think that's more key. If if you have workers who are home in the evening with their families and the employer is text messaging or emailing them and expecting them to answer that, I don't understand how that does not qualify for overtime. And I don't understand how the state can pass something that would interfere with federal wage and hour rules. I mean, I, I would not expect when we, when we communicate with reporters in the evening, we're, we're getting into their time. I'm a little bit surprised that that's part of this. I the commuting thing makes no sense to me because you're expected to get to the job and get back from the job for your, your eight hour day. But this seems like it's opening the door where, where I could, compel employees to communicate with me by email on their work hours and not compensate them. Well, but I think that now that there's this work from home dynamic, it really changes the rules of what is an eight hour day. I mean, you have people with flexible hours working from home. They're working around childcare or other activities. So they're not working a traditional eight hour day. So I think we do need to de- to de- you know to define what and what isn't overtime. I think this is something that's kind of, you know, just the start of the way we look at working from home. But that's traditionally not the job of the state government. That's generally done by the federal government with the federal wage and hour laws. I, I, this one seems seems odd, and we'll have to see if it gets challenged in the courts or what. It sounds like it passed without much discussion. You said some people voted mm-hmm. against it, but there wasn't a staunch opposition to it. it just if this evolves yeah. into companies compelling people to communicate with them at night without compensation, I don't think this will be the end of it. It's something that I think Sherrod Brown would get interested in. (laughs) Right, right. And and if I could add, you know, because, uh, you know, people are saying working from home is the new thing and and people want to work from home. But honestly, I could never work from home. But when you work from home, you're kind of breaking that work-life 
barrier there. I mean, you're working from home and some employers think, well, you're home, you know, you're working for me. You should answer emails anytime, night or day. I think that that's kind of opened the door for employer abuse, quite frankly. Well, not, not with this employer, but yes, there are other <laughs> employers who probably do that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Content marketing world puts Cleveland on the international map with its convention each year, but last year it was virtual. What's the plan for this year and what's being done to avoid spreading the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, it's back. It's back. You can do it virtually if you want, but it is happening in person with about 1,500 attendees who come together to talk about content marketing, which is a huge growth industry. It's basically creating content, whether that's social media or websites or emails that people, it's stuff people want to read that builds connections to brands. So you have to believe that when they were planning this, they didn't think we'd be dealing with sky high COVID spread because no one really saw this fall surge coming. But this is in the convention center. People mix it up in in breakout sessions and then they come in the main hall. There are usually tons of freebies and food being handed out. So to go, you have to be vaccinated or have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. They've created a floor plan that reduces the chance of crowding. Speakers are supposed to practice social distancing when speaking. They're giving people more time to get into the breakout room so you're not like crushing up against everybody. And I believe the food is going to be and this happened yesterday when I was at a luncheon, just pre-packaged rather than a server putting down a plate in front of you. The It is amazing how big this is. I, when this first started some years ago, it was, you know, we looked at it and thought, what is that? But, but in no time at all, it was an international event. People came from around mm-hmm. the world. We, you know, you hear from colleagues elsewhere in the country, hey, I'm coming to Cleveland for content marketing world. And there was a, there was a point at which uh, we thought it might move, and it didn't. It continues to be a a defining Cleveland event. Yeah, it is really cool. I got to go a couple of years ago. We we covered it really, um, really diligently. And Mindy Kaling was the big speaker that year. This year, it's Pete Souza, who is was a White House photographer for both both Obama and Reagan, I believe. So they're going to have a big draw for that. But it was cool. I actually met someone who came from Australia and I was like, really? And she said she loves it. She comes every year. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I hope everybody stays safe and they have a really good turnout and event. Yeah. The question is how many people will travel for that because of. Yeah. I doubt COVID. Australia is coming this year. Yeah, Not with you know, what's going on there. Too. Yeah. It won't have the level of participation, but, but it won't, you never know. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's get to this one. It's been on the list all week. Is Ohio Treasurer Robert Sprague trying to protect Ohioans from unwarranted privacy invasions? Or is he playing party politics with his objections to a new bank rule from the Biden administration? Lisa Garvin, this does sound like it's kind of invasive, uh, but but the goal for the, the Biden administration is to collect taxes. Correct. And this... This bill is allegedly to focus on high earners who underreport their taxes, which we know is endemic in our society. But the banks must provide information to the IRS on all bank accounts with ingoing and outgoing transactions of $600 and above, which seems like a pretty low ceiling. I mean, I know if you're like taking out cash and stuff, there's like a $10,000 limit. So I don't see how a $600 
floor is is going after high earners, quite honestly. Yeah, and it's I mean, that's a lot of work for banks too. If you have to report Absolutely. every time an account has six hundred dollars of movement, what you know, how many I bet that's the bulk of the accounts. It does seem like an overreach. You know, you see the Republicans constantly attacking initiatives of the Biden administration, but this is one that you sit back and think, wait, 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 is yeah. is that really the way to go? I mean, if you were if you had the money in a box in your house, they couldn't come see it, but because you have it in a bank, they get full eyes on it. The original disclosure laws for involving banks, they were trying to track illegal happenings. And so any transaction of $10,000 or more had to be reported. Uh, this seems like it's going a lot further. So it sounds like actually Sprague is trying to protect Ohioans from unwarranted privacy invasions. Good for him. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll have to leave it there. We'll come back Friday, wrap up a week of news. We'll have a great discussion tomorrow on some audacious plans by Metro Health that are being announced this evening at their annual meeting. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to Courtney for joining us at the top. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Mm-hmm.